0: FMR 101.3 Book Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month and so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3 I'm Gory bose Taylor.
1: And I'm chaba How are you Gory?
0: <laughs> Cold. <laughs> <laughs> this chilly hour Andrew Marshbank's Wordsworth Books brings us a cosy collection of fine fireside reading. Leslie Beek, an author deeply involved with children's literature, suggests a comic series by the Quasi team and that will hit the spot with young South African readers. And Leslie is stunned by Jess Bosworth-Smith's Brave and Marvellous The Straw Giant and the Crow. Ardent conservationist John Hanks dives deep into Living Shores by George and Margot Branch, a masterpiece on our maritime ecosystem, John declares. Vanessa Levenstein chatted to British historical novelist Kate Furnival about her latest, her ninth steamy romantic The Betrayal, where twin sisters are in Paris in 1938 on the cusp of war. Peter Sowell suggests that Who Will Rule in 2019 by Yan Hubert is required reading for all who want to understand coalition politics. Mike Fitzjames, so cruelly in this cold weather, puts ice in our veins with three chilling thrillers. While I while away winter with a quartet of non-fiction crime books, not all of them new. Finally, cook and cookery writer Philippa Chaffetz reminds us that Prince Harry and Meghan dished up whole bowls of wholesome and healthy poke food at their wedding. So, tuck into Melissa Delport's whole bowl food for balance. Yum. Do stay with us for our Easy Peasy competition question to win a copy of Living Shores or one of two 250 rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books. Andrew Boshbanks, a bulging bag of bestsellers for curl-up winter reading.
2: Hi, Gorry. Well, thank you. First of all, I must just congratulate the winners of the Sunday Times Awards. The first winner was Bungari Unkulunga, who wrote The Man Who Founded the ANC. That won the non-fiction prize, and for fiction... A Thousand Tales of Johannesburg by Harry Karmer. These are both wonderful reads. Those Sunday Times Awards really pick out the cream of the South African crop. And it has avoided doing things like the Jacques Poe book, which is fine and tends to highlight certain more unusual but extremely good books that have been published in South Africa. Talking of books being published in South Africa, there's a new book about uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and it's called Ramaphosa's Turn, Can Cyril Save South Africa? by Ralph Mateka, And I found it read very easily, nice reading. It gave you a a good understanding of the man, whether things are possible, uh, what we should expect, what we can't expect etc. Uh, so for anyone who's in that political quagmire and wonder why, where on earth the country is going to, this is a book to add to your reading list. pose's Turn, Can Cyril Save South Africa? And it's 285 Rand. Another non-fiction, but this one reads like a horror story, I'm afraid. This is the new Mandy Wiener book, Ministry of Crime and Underworld Explored. Well, you just want to read it and weep, but at least you can read it and you can see what has been happening, and it's really quite a horror tale. Mandy weiner has the inside scoop of most things. She's a very good writer. The book flows very well, but it is a frightening journey into the realm of the gangster state, as they say on the back cover. This is Jacques Poe. He says, It's immaculately researched and beautifully crafted amongst the finest non-fiction crime writing you will read. And it's all happened to us. Aren't we lucky? Okay, so that's Mandy Wiener, Ministry of Crime and Underworld Explored. Let's get on to some fiction now, a little bit of uh, stuff to take our minds off the problems. There's a new Anthony Horowitz. He's written a prequel, to Casino Royale. And as you all know, all the Bond books that are being written at the moment, these are really great fun. They are books that use Ian Fleming's style and the Bond that we know and construct new stories. So it's rather like a Bond franchise. And good authors have been writing them. And this one, Anthony Horowitz, he's written lots of crime stories before and it's always very clever and witty. It's called Forever and a Day. It relies on some original material by Ian Fleming and it is a prequel to Casino Royale. And that's 290 Rand. I enjoyed it. Then there's a new Stephen King. Stephen King is one of those authors that at least once a year he puts out a book. He is an immaculate author. All his books are beautifully written, well done, well constructed so that you you get into the book, you are immersed from the beginning to the end. Stephen King, an author who never fails. And this one is called Outsider, a breathtaking novel of suspense. Now Stephen King has gone outside the horror genre, the the carries and that sort of stuff. He's gone in, more into crime. And his Mr. Mercedes was a great success. And uh, this one follows swiftly on that track. It's called The Outsider. It's a novel of suspense and it's by Stephen King and it's 295 Rand. And the last one I must mention, there's a new Philip Kerr. It's called Greeks Bearing Gifts. Philip Kerr is a wonderful thriller writer. He knows exactly which buttons to press, what not to press, how to keep you on the edge of your seat. And this is a Bernie Gunter thriller. It's our staff choice in gardens. We love this book. And anyone who likes a detective thriller, who likes Philip Kerr, you must read this. It is only 300 Rand, and it's a big thick tome, and it's a Bernie Gunter thriller. That's Philip Kerr, Greeks Bearing Gifts. And let's hope we all survive this cold weather. Keep well, keep reading, cheers.
0: Leslie Beek, two remarkable titles there for children.
3: I think it was Tuesdays when our comics of choice thundered through our Edinburgh letterbox. Everything ranging from Andy Pandy to Waggers by way of the to reflect our different age groups and interests. Comics were a serious part of growing up. But I also remember the American comics an academic friend of my grandfather's passed on to us, and the puzzlement we all felt about not being able to understand what was funny or even interesting about them. Comics and graphic novels are very culture-specific, which is one reason I was more than delighted to welcome the spectacular African superheroes in the crazy comics, produced by Loisa Mackenzie and his team of talented graphic artists. They are visually stunning, and most importantly hit the spot with young south african readers they are in the essential ways local the quasi team have been at work on the concepts for some time and quasi develops as a superhero as a real south african in gold city where the realities sure are real there are currently three books encompassing nine stories children of all ages love them a book that also took me back to my childhood and the dreaded northern winter solstice is the straw giant and the crow written and illustrated by jessica bosworth smith i must have read this book ten times now and every time i see more there's a lot to think about for children of 12 and upwards jessica leads us back into stirrings of memories of stories and myths that were part of many cultures deep in human history and psyche, half-remembrances, half-forgotten fears. This is a story about power and love, loneliness and friendship, of death, of sacrifice, of renewal. This powerful book speaks to me on a very deep level. It's a connection to other times, pre-Christian times, times so long ago that they have been all but forgotten. The world says Terry Pratchett so marvellously accesses with his Tiffany A. King series and many of his other books as well. It is marvellous. It's also brave. Bravely written, bravely illustrated, and bravely locally published. It is in no way conventional, and for that reason alone, deserves to be closely read. Quasi Comics by Larissa McKesley and the Quasi team are published by New Africa Books, and The Straw Giants and the Crow is written and illustrated by Jessica Bosworth-Smith and is published by Imaginary House.
0: John Hanks, you've been splashing about in living shores.
4: Yes, I have indeed, and I'm going to review a very really good book. It's written by George and Margot Branch, and they produce what I must call a masterpiece. It's entitled Living Shores, and this beautifully illustrated production explores many fascinating aspects of life along the coast of southern Africa from Mozambique to Angola. The authors have used up-to-date and comprehensive references, gleaned from over 3,500 research papers and books, and have summarized these in a highly readable and interesting way. A superb example, to other academics of how to write for the general public. Part one of the book explores in detail the ecosystems of the shores, using illustrations of the species of vegetation and animal life in each of the areas, often with exemplary graphics of the composition of the food webs, together with information on the life cycle and feeding habits of the species involved. The text is detailed but never dull. For example, describing the algal blooms, popularly known as red tides, the authors noted that the first record of a red tide was in the Bible, where, in Exodus 7, are the words the water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish died. The name red tide should be changed to harmful algal blooms because they have nothing whatsoever to do with tides, nor are they always red, but they often disrupt the ecosystem. In part two of Living Shores, the focus is on the human population, and this should, I believe, be compulsory reading for everyone. With the human population reaching 7.5 billion in 2017, and predicted to grow to over 11 billion by the end of this century, the pressure on all the natural sources, including those in the sea and along the coast, should be of enormous concern to all of us. Issues covered in the book include the detrimental impact of marine mining, inappropriate development in sensitive areas, pollution, invasive species and climate change. The precipitous decline in southern African fish stocks and marine mammals has been captured in an excellent series of well-illustrated figures and accompanying photographs. But at the same time, the authors have shown what can be done to slow or even reverse these trends through public opinion influencing markets. A good example here is the admirable South African Sustainable Seafood Initiative, also known as SASSI, produced by WWF South Africa, which classifies seafood in a handy pocket guide into three groups, namely green, orange and red, according to the state of the stock and availability of purchase, both in shops and in restaurants. The final chapters are what a book like this should have. Not all gloom and doom, but hope for the future, including the vital importance of education in the chapter Spreading Sea Wisdom, the penultimate chapter on the growth and development of marine protected areas, and the last chapter on the introduction of important new policies which have the potential to make a significant difference if implemented with a real commitment. For anyone listening who is already spending time in our beautiful coastal areas, this is a book you must have, as I'm sure you will learn lots more from it. For those new to the shores, I guarantee you'll be stimulated to spend more time there as soon as you look at this outstanding publication. The title is written by George and Margot Branch. It's Living Shores Interacting with Southern Africa's Marine Ecosystems. It's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town, and you can buy it for 450 rand.
0: And Living Shores is one of our giveaways today as well as two 250 rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books. And here's our easy-peasy competition question. Now is the winter of our discontent. Those are the opening words of Richard III. Who wrote Richard III? Was it Enid Blyton? Was it Shakespeare? We're looking forward to your calls on 021 401 1013. And here's a pre recorded interview with steamy historical novelist Kate Furnival and Vanessa Levenstein.
5: Dramatic, seductive, and thrilling, The Betrayal by Kate Furnival is set in Paris, 1938. It tells the story of twin sisters divided and joined by a dark secret. Romy is a pilot who literally flies undercover to help the resistance, while his sister is a socialite married to a high ranking government official. Joining us on the line from Joburg is best-selling author Kate Furnival. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning to you. (laughs) Morning. You dedicate the book to your own twin sister. How closely did you draw on this relationship when writing about Florence and Romy?
6: Well, being a twin is something that is very, very special. We were together virtually every minute of the day and night for the first 11 years of our lives. And so the bond is incredibly intense you are at times almost inside each other's head and this was something that for many years i felt it was too intimate too close to me to write about but quite suddenly it seemed to open up and when i was thinking what shall i write about next i just had this tremendous urge to include these emotions that i feel for my sister and she feels for me and this is what i wanted to capture in the book is Huge fundamental bond between them but which because of the events that they are caught up in is trying to tear them apart.
5: Well that bond certainly did come through. Another strong relationship in the book is that between Romy and her lover Leo Martel. Now he's broken physically while Romy is broken emotionally. How does love heal?
6: Because love like they say is blind in that he may see what's there, but it doesn't matter what's there, and Romy saw Leo, all his strengths, his courage, his patience, his kindness, his bravery, and his grumpiness, mm-hmm. and his wonderful flying skills that she knew about, but now he's too damaged to do so. And her love for him helps heal the damage within herself, because, It is from him that she learns to believe in herself, and throughout the book, as his love for her grows and hers for him grows, she moves from being a totally screwed up young woman to one who begins to learn to open up to trust and to commit herself to doing something worthwhile with her life.
5: You write from your idyllic home in Devon, yet your novels are set in another time and place.
6: I know. I think it's because it's so peaceful in in Devon, it allows me the space to actually go all over the world, go to exotic places, and uh, enjoy what these places have to offer that I don't have in Devon. And it all started because when I wrote my first book, it was based on the life of my mother and grandmother, and that was in Russia. And the first book was set in China, but they were Russian within China. And it was... Totally enticing and captivating and it gave me a taste for exploring fantastic places and incredibly detailed events that people know nothing about and I wanted to impart these in my book. Well you certainly succeeded
5: now does the research inspire the plot or does the plot lead to the research?
6: Ah yes that's always the question it goes both ways I usually start with a sense of place I decide where I feel drawn to and at different times in my life I've been drawn to different places Uh, sometimes sunny sometimes cold and wintry it I think probably depends on where I am in my own life because all authors put so much of themselves in the book and it's only quite often when you look at the book afterwards you can actually see what it was you were drawing on within yourself and very often um, (laughs) sorry I got a bit of a cough Um, very often the place then when I have decided on it and I have found the moment of crisis in that country's history that I want to uh, set as the background for my story and I then start getting all kinds of ideas and I go to the place and it can trigger some totally unexpected directions because I never know what I'm going to find until I go there. So you
5: also have surprises when writing and researching?
6: Oh, you have to have these surprises because if we knew it all at the beginning, you couldn't flog through a whole novel. You'd just get bored. We need to surprise ourselves as well as the reader.
5: Talking of surprises, can we expect more surprises? Is the portrayal one of a trilogy or is it a standalone?
6: (laughs) No, it's a standalone. So the next book is in the same area. But um, where I'm thinking of moving now, where I have in my next book, is in fact to Germany about six months after the war is over. And it is seeing the impact of the destruction that went on on the whole of Europe. And it's set in a displaced persons camp in Germany, which is full of all the people who lost their homes and lives from um, to, as well as Czechoslovakia, Poland, Latvia all these countries young and Germans and, themselves and they have this intense sort of, uh, hotbed of emotion as a woman and her daughter try to survive they've survived the war now they've got to survive to make a new life for themselves and the book is called The Survivors that'll be out in um, uh, September in hardback and November in paperback
5: Powerful subject matter Thank you Kate Furnival for joining us And I yes. hope that after this book South Africa will inspire another oh, book Oh yes,
6: I have to say I absolutely love South Africa This is my first visit here And I've fallen completely in love And I will certainly be looking at it For future stories
5: All the best, thank you so much for joining us On Fine Music Radio Book Choice
0: Thank you very much Peter Sowell you suggest that Yan Yan Hubert's book is required reading for those of us who want to understand coalition politics.
1: Who Will Rule in 2019 is written by Yan Yan Hubert and published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Well-known writer and commentator Max Duprier says it is, quote, required reading for understanding coalition politics and the dynamics leading up to the 2019 election, unquote. Until recently, Joubert was the parliamentary correspondent for the Johannesburg Sunday Times and now writes as commentator for a number of other media houses. Joubert has been a journalist since 2001, which he says he loves, as it gives him the opportunity to witness and record firsthand South African history as it is made, even though he acknowledges political journalism is at the same time the most wonderful and the most difficult of professions showing the best and the worst side of people in times of great personal triumph and huge personal distress. Jan Jan begins the book by analysing the declining support for the ANC during the course of the past few years. Nationally, their support fell from 62% in the 2014 general election to 53% in the 2016 local government elections. Since then, they have had to cope with state capture, leadership disputes and further upheavals and its position among the voters has hardly improved. The ANC slide since August 2016 has been borne out by the numbers. 118 by-elections have taken place between August 2016 and December 2017. The ANC put up candidates in each by-election and registered an average swing against it countrywide of 7.4 per cent. Further one swallow doesn't make a summer, but the ANC has not been able to dent the DA support in the by-elections since Ramaphosa was elected president, and this book was written before the De issue became a major problem for the opposition party. But given the continued and unprecedented flow of support away from the ANC to various opposition parties, Joubert reaches the conclusion there is a definite possibility of the ANC dipping below 50%, which will mean coalitions are a future of our politics. Joubert then proceeds to analyse the ANC decline from the Halcyon and Mandela years, the difficult Mbeki years, and the disastrous Zuma presidency. He also provides some considerable detail on how the arrangement between the DA and the EFF was arrived at after the 2016 local government elections. Both parties were determined not to do any deals with the ANC and were fortunately served by two men negotiators in the DA Federal Executive Chairman James Self and Secretary-General Godric Gardy of the EFF, both of whom developed a respect for each other and were able to reach agreement on issues other hotheads would have found it difficult. Since then, Ramaphosa has taken office, and for a while there was a season of Ramaphobia. Joubert describes Ramaphosa as a master of patience and strategy, and it remains to be seen if the cards will fall his way and the season of tolerance persists to be of assistance to the ANC in the forthcoming 2019 election. Joubert then examines the options available to the two main opposition parties leading to the 2019 elections and what the smaller parties can do. He then analyzes certain, what he calls, burning issues, such as the economy, land, labor, and black economic empowerment, and nationalization, and corruption. So, who will rule after the election in 2019? Joubert offers a number of options for coalitions or a government of national unity, but all will depend on voter turnout. This book is a serious analysis of the current South African political situation and will be of interest to all who follow political party trends.
0: Mike Fitzjames, trying to ice our
7: veins with three chilling thrillers. Good afternoon, Gory. I have three exciting reads this month. My first choice is The Rune by Dervla McTiernan. In his first week in the job, Garth Cormac-Riley responds to a call at a decrepit country house and finds two silent, neglected children waiting for him, 15-year-old Maud and 5-year-old Jack. Their mother lies dead upstairs. Twenty years later, Cormac has left his high-flying career as a detective in Dublin, and return to Galway. As he struggles to navigate the politics of his new appointment, Maud and Jack reappear in his life. What connects a recent suicide to the death of their mother long ago? And who, among his unfriendly new colleagues, can he trust to assist him in his attempt to unravel the mystery that no one else is interested in? This was a fascinating story from page one. My second choice is the latest in the Charlie Parker series by John Connolly. The title is The Woman in the Woods. The semi-preserved body of a young woman is discovered in the main woodlands. It's clear that she had given birth shortly before her death, but there's no sign of any baby. The lawyer Moxie Caston engages Charlie Parker to shadow the police investigation and thereby find the child. Parker is not the only searcher. Someone else is following the woman's trail. Someone with an interest in more than a missing child. Someone prepared to leave bodies in his wake. Now in a house by the woods a toy telephone begins to ring and a small boy is about to receive a call from a dead woman. How will Charlie Parker unravel this mystery and stay alive? This was a great read, as usual. My final choice is Death Is Not Enough by Karen Rose. Gwen Weaver is as resilient as anybody could be. Having survived an attempted murder, she has rebuilt her life and reclaimed her strength. She always realized her feelings for defense attorney Thomas Thorn, but as her friend and colleague, there could be little chance of more than that. Thorne has known violence and pain all his life. He's overcome the hardships thanks to his own grim determination and the support of his loyal friends. Now he's thinking it might finally be time to relax and let his guard down a little. Suddenly, Thorne's whole new world is torn apart when he is found unconscious in his own bed the lifeless body of a strange woman lying next to him and her blood on his hands. Knowing Thorne could never have committed such a crime, Gwyn and his friends rally round to clear his name. But as it turns out, This is just the beginning of a brutal campaign to destroy Thorn and everything he holds dear. I found this to be unforgettable and truly satisfying. That's it for this month. My choices were The Rune by Dervla McTiernan, The Woman in the Woods by John Connolly. And Death is Not Enough by Karen Rose enjoy your reading and here's a quartet of non-fiction crime books
0: not all of them new. Johnny Steinberg's The Number is seven years old Andrew Brown's Good Cop, Bad Cop Confessions of a Reluctant Policeman was published last year Hit Men for Hire Exposing South Africa's Underworld by Mark Shaw is this year's offering as is Killing Goldfinger The Secret Bullet Written Life and Death of Britain's Gangster Number One by Wesley Clarkson. These four will help you to make up your mind whether to be or not to be a gangster. Of course, crime pays. Britain's number one gangster, John Palmer, was worth 40 million quid when the hitman bullet hit home. He was 66. He had a couple of English country houses, plus parklands, a Lear jet, a swanky boat for torturing his victims whose screams out in the ocean couldn't be heard. He had posh penthouses in Tenerife where he made the real money, laundering money, timeshare fraud. Have I mentioned his big gold spelter in a garden shed in one of his acres of garden? So that's where the bullion went, from the Brinks-Matt robbery in 1985 and the Hatton Garden robbery. All of this is very well if you have the stomach for it. All that torture, all those murders. Which brings us to hiring a hitman in South Africa to do the nasty bits. Check Mark Shaw's enthralling index. There's Glenn Agliotti, Brett Cabell... Vito Palazzolo, Radovan One Lolly Jackson, the Chinese Triad, the Italian Mafia, the Nigerians, all chasing the taxi industry, drugs, extortion. This is look over your shoulder till should you have a sore neck stuff. Oh, you want to hire a hitman? There are three levels. You need to go for gold. That's the one who'll do the job and leave no track or trace. Further down the rungs, well, you could be traced and tried, unless you've a few rogue cops in your pay. Mark Shaw's credentials are impeccable. He's the Director of Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, various other titles, and is now Adjunct Professor at UCT Centre of Criminology. There are rogue cops... As there are rogue anythings, advocate Andrew Brown is a police reservist and his good cop, bad cop, will fill you with admiration for the courageous, effective and polite police. As an apartheid activist, Andrew was imprisoned and then interrogated by a nervous young cop whom he bumped into all these years later. Andrew, with his advocate's robes flapping down Kerom Street... The cop saw him, blushed and fled. You chuckle at Andrew in his nighttime nakedness nicking a burglar in his own house. But you remember forever Andrew's tender picture of two really, really poor shacks along the canal in Mazipumalela, fetid with feces, scum and dead dogs where a toddler laughs as he slaps the water in a red bucket, and where a young woman speaks with an upper-end private school accent. If you still feel you'd like to be a gung-ho gangster, then you haven't read Johnny Steinberg's The Number, where you'll find out about your Polesmore Prison initiation, unpleasant sexual initiation, deeply, deeply unpleasant... Your place in the prison gang hierarchy, how low can you get? Three well-written, widely-researched, riveting crime books. Just Killing Goldfinger by Wesley Clarkson is appallingly written. Where was a good editor when one was so frantically needed? Philippa Shaffetz,
8: a whole bowl of balanced food there. Whole Bowl Food for Balance by Melissa Delport published by Strake Lifestyle. By the time the Royals were serving food in bowls at weddings, my editor thought it appropriate to recommend a book on the subject. There are poke bowls, a definite trend. What is a poke bowl, you may ask? Or may know that a poke bowl is a traditional Hawaiian meal, rice topped with diced, marinated tuna or salmon, or any other raw fresh fish with soya and seaweed poke means to slice or cut think of it as deconstructed sushi but contemporary versions have a way of their own following the whims of the cook the one on the cover of whole named island poke bowl has avo and mango as well as brown rice tuna edamame pickled ginger sesame seeds and sliced nori just one of nearly 90 bowls of healthy well-balanced and easy meals that taste as good as they look. The author, Melissa Delport, writes that these bowls came about from Buddha bowls, which are simply bowls of nourishment that contain healthy grains, raw or cooked vegetables, a healthy fat, a protein and a whole bunch of greens. Melissa took the photographs and styled the pics. She's a Cape Town-based food photographer and blogger. Inspired by health coach Nikita Stahlbaum, who weaned her off fad diets to eat real, fresh food that nourishes and energizes. Many of the recipes are vegan or vegetarian, but meat is not neglected. Obsessed with breakfast, a healthy one, the section on Sunrise Bowls is packed with good ideas – sunshine cheer, a mango and cheer porridge, smoothie bowls prepared the night before for get-up-and-go mornings or overnight soaked oats quickly topped in the morning with almonds, coconut flakes, blueberries and chia seeds a pumpkin and oat homemade granola for breakfast or an anytime snack plus good ways with eggs A section on fresh bowls includes interesting salads out of the ordinary combos and dressings There are delicious soups, a spicy prawn soup, saffron and pumpkin, a slow-cooked beef shin and vegetable soup. But first, I'm going for the chicken, turmeric and ginger soup that Melissa names get well soup. Then there are ancient grain bowls, amaranth and quinoa, prized by the Aztecs and Incas, along with barley, millet, spelt, buckwheat and frika, have been around for thousands of years Melissa loves roasted vegetables and mixes them with brown rice or quinoa herbs and nuts a chicken fajita bowl with wild rice, a Korean beef and sweet potato bowl with brown rice hot and spicy pulled pork with quinoa Hearty home bowls are the ultimate comfort food. A butternut lentil and chickpea curry. A Mediterranean fried falafel bowl. Another with baked falafel, roasted veg and hummus. Lentil meatballs with garam masala. A humble stew with beef shin. Oodles of noodles and plenty of pasta. Coconut broth with green tea chicken, Asian veg and rice vermicelli. Drunken duck ragu with gnocchi. A Romanesco and basil pesto pasta. There are bowls for sharing. Five kinds of hummus, one basic and four variations, three kinds of pesto. Treat bowls are your sweet treats, but without synthetic sugary ingredients. Healthy substitutes are used. Almond and coconut milk, maple and coconut sugar, almond flour. Simply eating out of a bowl is comforting in itself all the more filled with delicious, wholesome food. It's matinee up next, and Amanda Boerter's Book yes,
0: sir, on Wednesday, July 18. And there's joyous news. From next month, Book Choice has a new time slot. It's at noon, still on the first Monday of the month, which gives us an extra ten minutes. Rejoice. Thank you to Rick Everidge for so kindly compiling the music, to Mawandi Lobey, sound engineer, and to Matabatabara Debbie for so cleverly keeping the show on the road. And from me, Gauri Bowes-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books.
2: Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. F-M-R.